Hello, and thank you for joining us on The Business Advantage. I am Alicia M. Pennington, your host and owner of Advantage Athletic Training. Today, we're going to be discussing the topic of contract work, or more broadly, hourly positions, the on-demand workforce, and the general idea of how to research and represent yourself for these kinds of positions. Not only is my entire company based on this kind of work, but I see posts about it in athletic training forums regularly, and I believe it's a burgeoning sector of athletic training. Just as with anything else, it's important to understand the dynamics of this kind of work, including the various factors that play into it and how to ensure you're protecting yourself from liability. Whether you have little to no knowledge of what an independent contractor is, or you're already a professional freelancer, you will benefit from understanding how this type of work impacts our profession. Key learning objectives. Define independent contractor and be able to identify the differentiating factors between employee and contractor. Understand the role that contract work plays in the growth of the profession. Identify how to reduce risk and protect oneself through the use of insurance and contracts. For the purpose of today's discussion, we are going to use the word contractor to refer to someone who is an independent contractor. According to Wikipedia, an independent contractor is a person, business, or corporation that provides goods or services to another entity under terms specified in a contract or verbal agreement. A fairly basic and wide-sweeping definition. So we're going to look at how the IRS defines an independent contractor, which is far more important than what Wikipedia has to say. The IRS defines it as people who are in an independent trade business, or profession in which they offer their services to the general public. Some examples of these professions that they give are dentists, lawyers, veterinarian, and they more clearly define an independent contractor with the general rule that if the payer has the right to control or direct only the result of the work and not what will be done and how it will be done. That is a key provision to the difference between an employer and an independent contractor. Let's dive into that. As an independent contractor, you are technically self-employed, which means you work for yourself. And this comes with a different parameter of tax implications, and it also is a differentiating factor for your relationship with the client. In the previous statement that the IRS made about the payer only has the right to control or direct the result of work, not what will be done or how it will be done. This is a major relationship difference between the contractor and employer. Most of us are used to employee-employer relationships. That's what is most prevalent in our society. And so it takes time and understanding to recognize what an independent contractor relationship is. 
So an employee-employer relationship is one where you are told to work a certain amount of hours, perhaps you clock in and clock out, you are given specific trainings on certain aspects of your duties, and to an extent, you're told how to do your job. In a contractor scenario, many of these types of behaviors are not allowed, such as a limitation on the amount and type of instruction or training that that can be given. Technically, if you're an independent contractor, you should already have the skills necessary to do the job. You shouldn't be going through a training to learn how to do that job. Reimbursements and equipment aren't necessarily supposed to be provided by the person that you're working for on a contractor relationship. This one is one that you can kind of go both ways on and we'll get into it a little bit later. The permanency of the relationship and the um, the way that it's defined in terms of how long you will work or to what extent you will work is different between an employee and a contractor. And of course, how the contracts are written and defined. Are they upfront and using the appropriate language to refer to you as a contractor, or are they giving you every indication that you're going to be an employee, but yet from a taxes standpoint, you're a contractor? Just in those descriptions alone, you can kind of start to gather how the idea of picking up a weekend tournament to work is a much different situation, both behaviorally and from a relationship roles perspective than what you might do on an everyday or ongoing basis. Basically, working as an independent contractor, you represent yourself and the client has far less control over you. However, you also have a greater responsibility from a taxes and a liability perspective. And I'm going to break all of that down for you. What significance does this have to our profession? Well, representing oneself as an independent contractor is quite commonplace among the professional sectors of laborers. In fact, it's well aligned with NATA's efforts in lobbying the standard occupational classification system to realign athletic trainers as a professional occupation instead of a technical one. The implication of this adjustment informs labor research and may have influence on the hiring, salary, and employment decisions for athletic trainers. While we fight for the classification that we feel that we deserve, it's important to demonstrate ourselves as the independent thinking and functioning professionals that we are. Working as an independent contractor is one way to exhibit autonomous decision-making and illustrate how, as professionals, we work far and beyond the technical aspects of our duties. I believe that there is a tremendous amount of opportunity available to athletic trainers through the contract work route. Many emerging practice positions start out as independent contractor relationships, as well as the youth sports population being a burgeoning field with many of the new laws we are seeing being passed. The ability to represent yourself to several clients as opposed to tying yourself down to one presents much greater possibility of expanding your professional endeavors as well. Let's take a look at the three primary influencers on independent contract work. 
The first item you must pay attention to for contract work is your state's practice act. Most states require standing orders for their license. So it's important to understand if the physician you have standing orders under for your regular job will also extend that to you for contract work or if the client you are providing contract work for has solidified standing orders from a physician already. Because California does not have a state practice act, I pose this question to an athletic training forum asking how most athletic trainers work around this. I'm actually pretty saddened to report that most of the people who responded had not even considered this prior to picking up contract work. I had just assumed that it was a prerequisite, almost like you had to submit it prior to working, but it appears that the regulation of athletic trainers working under the direction of a physician is not necessarily the most stringent, especially in regards to contract work. However, with that said, it's really important that you ask and have an answer if you plan to work as an independent contractor. My recommendation would be to use the relationship you already have in place with your ongoing physician to see if they would extend you standing orders for you to do contract work as well. This way, you are free to pick up and work any gig that you'd like, knowing that you're covered under those standing orders, as opposed to relying on each tournament or client to establish this relationship for you. Understand that if your state practice act requires this of you and you're working without it, there's a possibility that you could lose your license. I don't say that to scare you, but if something happened at the tournament you were covering, a parent or the client got upset and came after you for some reason, it's one of the first pieces of information that would be examined. There is no hourly pay or tournament or gig that is worth working for if you potentially lose your license. As for California folks, none of this really applies yet. (laughs) Though, of course, for everybody, always make sure that you're working within your scope of practice. The next aspect of liability that you need to shore up is insurance. I'm going to be 100% honest with you. I don't know how any athletic trainer works without carrying professional liability insurance. I understand many of us were not taught this in school, but guys, we are healthcare practitioner. There is absolutely no reason as to why you are working without insurance. Most of you if you work a regular job as an employee, are probably covered under your employer's insurance. But I would even encourage those of you who fall into that category to purchase and carry your own policy in addition to that. Just like with physicians, hospitals and clinics are going to carry their own policy, and the physician also has his or her malpractice insurance as well. If you're going to work as an independent contractor, it is absolutely necessary that you are insured. With Advantage, we do not put anyone on the field who does not have their own policy. This is not only to protect ourselves, but it's to protect the athletic trainer as well. 
This is one of those topics that is a non-negotiable as it is basically for your own good. If you're not going to protect yourself and I'm going to protect you for you, we have our own insurance. We will be protected if anything happened. I'm trying to help out the athletic trainer and you should be helping yourself out by making that a mandatory requirement for yourself. Personally, I recommend HPSO as an insurance provider, which you can purchase a policy for anywhere between $200 and $400 a year. And that is then an expense that you could write off on your taxes. So people, if you're not insured, pause this podcast right now, go to HPSO and get yourself insurance. Just like if you're not working with standing orders, if you are working without insurance, you have to just stop. Just don't do it. (laughs) Again, there is no job that is worth working if you get sued and potentially lose everything. We need to be smart and protect ourselves in our professional endeavors. Do not be naive and assume that nothing will ever happen to you. In an ideal world, this is a true statement. And while you may never do anything wrong, that does not stop another party from naming you in a lawsuit. Just like driving your car, having health insurance, we never expect or desire to get into an accident or to get sick or to have something catastrophic ever happen. But the fact of life is that Things happen, and most of the time, they're beyond our control. And if you're going to protect your car, if you're going to protect your health, then you need to protect your career by not only having standing orders and making sure that you're working within your state's practice act, but ensuring yourself to make sure that nothing happens if you were to get named in a lawsuit. And I probably shouldn't say that because we can't ensure that nothing will happen, but at least you have the protection in place. Okay, moving on. Second topic we need to talk about in relation to independent contract work is the pay. This is the question I see posted in the forums most frequently. It always says, how much should I charge? which is an extremely subjective question, especially considering that most of these forums are all across the nation. And I will say that most people say in Wyoming, in Nebraska, in Rhode Island. And so at minimum, they're giving people an idea of where their pay is at in terms of their geographic region. And if you've listened to some of our previous podcasts on branding and marketing or negotiation, you understand why what I'm going to say with hourly pay is so subjective yet objective based on what you've created for yourself. So this is an extremely subjective question that warrants a great deal of objective information in order to come to a conclusion on. While posting this inquiry on an online forum can help you determine what others in your area are paying or charging, this is largely going to be based on value. Here are some factors to consider when trying to determine what to charge for an hourly rate. One, 
What do other professionals in the area charge for similar services? This could be other athletic trainers, physical therapists, EMTs, medical doctors, PAs. Ask around outside of athletic training and figure out what does a paramedic company charge to set up a rig? What does an EMT charge to show up and be there with a kit? What are the running rates for a medical doctor to be available on the sidelines? Gather all of that information. Next, what fee will motivate you to do this work? Ensure that the compensation is in respect to the time that you're going to need to dedicate. Perhaps your morning or evening hours are more valuable to you than weekends or vice versa. If this contract work is going to require you to miss putting your kids to bed or working on your master's thesis, then the compensation needs to warrant that. Next, what is the client expecting to pay? Always find out what the budget is so that you can try to meet them somewhere near it or educate them on the proper value of an athletic trainer. For example, if they're offering $25 an hour and really your minimum rate or what you would prefer to work for is $30 an hour, well, let's say that this is an eight-hour gig. What you say to them is, you know, do you think that you could come up with $40 more for the total day in order to compensate me? When you say it like that, instead of, I want $5 more per hour, or I need 30 instead of 25, it's hard for them to rationalize what that actually means. But when you basically tell them that you're asking for 40 bucks more for the whole thing for all eight hours, because five bucks more per hour times eight hours is 40 bucks, it's a lot easier for them to think, well, you know, 40 bucks really isn't that much, especially considering the service that they're going to get from a professional. So always think about that. Don't get scared about the big number. Maybe it's a long-term contract or it's a gig that, you know, you multiply it all out and it's $200 more. It doesn't hurt to ask them. Maybe they will meet you in the middle. You also need to find out what their compensation is expected to cover. So is there a commute involved for you? Is mileage going to be able to be compensated? If not, you can write that off. We'll get to that in a minute. Supplies, ice, etc. All of those things you should find out ahead of time what is being provided for the hourly rate. If they have a budget that is lower, negotiate to be able to charge for taping or have them provide ice. For example, if they're going to say $25 an hour and let's say they can't afford to give you an extra 40 bucks. Well, then I would tell them you need to provide the ice. I'll charge a couple bucks for each tape job I do. And you can try to make up the money or you can just decide it's not worth it for you at 25 bucks an hour. The next thing to consider with the hourly pay is supply and demand. This is a very core business topic, but applies tremendously to the topic of what you're going to be able to charge. Is this tournament that you're being asked to cover, whatever it is, in the middle of the summer when tons of athletic trainers are out of their regular paying jobs and want to pick up work? Or is this during the middle of football season? Or maybe it's around the holidays. 
you might be able to negotiate higher pay for yourself if your services are in higher demand. This is something to keep in mind, especially if you're booking gigs out further in advance, while the client is basically trying to get you to lock into something before the demand gets too high, which is brilliant for the client, but take that into consideration. Are they asking you in September to come and work over Thanksgiving weekend? Well, you might think, wow, they're giving me tons of notice and they're really helping me out with this and I have the weekend free anyways, but think about potentially what you could be charging additional because it's Thanksgiving weekend. Some states have given formal recommendations on what an athletic trainer should be paid hourly for per diem work. In my opinion, these recommendations are just a bit far-reaching for what my experience has shown that the market can bear, but they're really good reference points, and it's a great article and idea for you to start with and also to understand how they arrived at that number. So if you're looking for guidance, again, not a bad idea to post into forums to get an idea, but also think about your branding, your marketing, what you've negotiated and the value that you've been able to create for yourself in the service that you're providing. Keep all that in mind. While we're talking about how to determine what to charge, let's also talk about a payment timescale. I'm just going to say it flat out. It is unacceptable that any athletic trainer should have to wait to get paid. There is no excuse as to why you should agree to work a contract and then not see compensation for more than two weeks. A company like mine has a regular schedule of every other Friday where contractors get paid for hours that they worked in the previous uh, pay cycle. But one-off gigs should either pay you on the spot or have a check to you within 14 days. Do not accept terms that delay your pay until the company invoices or sees a check. I understand cash flow. Believe me. It's one of the most challenging aspects of paying athletic trainers when services are rendered versus not getting paid by the client until 30 or 60 days later. But I would never ask someone to work for us and not pay them until we got paid. It's unprofessional and you should not accept it. Ensure that you have written contracts detailing all of these topics. You shouldn't ever just agree to work a gig, show up, work, and leave with no formal or written terms. You don't know how many times I've gotten a call from an athletic trainer asking for advice on how to get paid, and they've got nothing in writing not even an email. They get a call, they agree to work, they show up, and then haven't heard a single thing since. Guys, we've got to protect ourselves. This isn't worth a couple hundred bucks to stress about. If the tournament you are working for didn't offer any paperwork, craft an email with bullet points defining what was discussed. 
It's super simple. As soon as you get off the phone with somebody, shoot them over an email. Hey, so-and-so per our discussion over the phone, semicolon bullet points, whatever it was that you guys discussed, what time you're going to show up, how long you're going to work, what supplies are going to be provided. Is there an EAP? Is there an AED? When you're going to get paid, whatever it is, strict bullet points, guys. Then at the very end, just say, please reply to confirm receipt. All they have to do is reply and say, confirmed. You at least then have something in writing that shows, one, you ever had a conversation, but two, the terms that were agreed upon. If you feel like you're being difficult or that's just doing too much to ask the client to confirm that, then maybe you shouldn't be picking up this kind of work because, again, you're better safe than sorry. It's not worth you getting a couple hundred bucks over the weekend and then you were relying on buying your girlfriend's Valentine's gift with it and it never shows up. You needed to pay your car insurance. You owed some friends some money. You were relying on a vacation with that money. It's just not worth it, guys. Just don't do it. If you need help in this area, if you feel like that email that I just described isn't simple enough or you're looking for something that is a more formal written contract, go to LegalZoom. They've got really simple templates. Or you know what? Just email me. If you've got questions, I'm happy to help you with this. This is something I'm super passionate about. Shoot me an email, alicia at theadvantage.com. I'll help you out with this. All right, we're moving on. Taxes. The next most important aspect to discuss regarding contract work is taxes. Because you are self-employed, your paycheck will not have deductions taken out of it like you would if you were an employee. This means that whatever pay you negotiate yourself for yourself, let's say it was 30 bucks an hour for three hours, you will receive a full payment of $90. Now, This doesn't mean that you won't owe taxes on it later, though, because you know Uncle Sam is going to want his money. Uh, You do have to meet the minimum threshold of $600 in order to receive a 1099. So if you work a gig here or there, but you never accumulate more than $600 in the year, Uncle Sam's actually going to let you have that for free. Thank him later. Otherwise, you will receive a 1099, which is the equivalent of a W-2, but when you work as an independent contractor. Now, when you receive this 1099, let's say it's for $1,000 for some tournament that you worked at some point throughout the year. Technically, you would owe taxes on that full amount of $1,000. However, Since you're self-employed, you can write off expenses to lower that tax liability. Some of the expenses that you can write off are, one, cost of insurance. So that $200 to $400 policy that you paused this podcast to go and purchase can now be written off in the full amount. So we've already shaved $200 to $400 off your $1,000 check. Next is mileage. When you work for yourself... When you drive from your home to your place of work, those miles are able to be written off. So track all miles that you drive to get from your house to wherever that gig or that tournament or whatever it was 
is located at. If you didn't do this at the time, hop onto Apple Maps real quick. You remember where that tournament was. Type it in, do a round trip trip for however many times you drove there and log those miles. Multiply that mileage by the federal reimbursement rate, which for this year is 54 cents per mile. So let's say you drove 100 miles round trip, that's $54 that you now get to write off from that $1,000. Isn't this awesome? I'm going to keep going. Okay. Food. If you got a bite to eat on the way to your gig, or maybe while you were working, it was an all-day tournament, and you got some food from the snack shack, you can charge the full amount of that cost, but taxes are only going to take 50% of it. So don't think divide your total in half and input that. Give your tax person or whatever software you're using for your taxes, put the full amount in there, and then it knows that 50% of... um, food costs can be written off. Also supplies. If you purchase your own supplies, tape, ice, maybe you got yourself a portable table, you can write off the complete cost of that. Okay. So just with what I've mentioned there, we've probably lowered your tax liability close to in half. So now we're at a point where we probably only owe taxes on about 500 of that thousand dollars, which depending on what tax bracket you're in, is really going to be a pretty small sum of change. Those are the most common write-offs for your average per diem worker who picks up a shift here or there throughout the year. However, if you are a professional freelancer or you work majority of your time as a contractor, here are some other write-offs that you can take advantage of. NATA dues. You can write off 100% of dues and subscriptions, which also include journals or magazine subscriptions that you have that are related to your field of work. So me, for example, I subscribe to entrepreneur.com and the entrepreneur magazine. So I get that written off with the cost of my company. If you get the... NATA journal um, or the, the journal of athletic training, excuse me, that would be a complete cost that you could write off from the money that you bring in as an independent contractor. Also, apparel. If you purchase a polo or khakis or a pair of shoes to wear for work, these can be written off as your uniform. CEUs, professional fees, including those to remain certified or licensed can be written off. This could also include the cost of getting your taxes completed by a professional. There's a number of other additional costs that you could utilize and take advantage of that I haven't mentioned. So if you intend to do contract work on an ongoing basis, I would highly recommend setting yourself up with an accountant or a registered agent who can talk you through how to manage all of these deductions. We also had a podcast in season one called Taxes. That was our tax lady who works with Advantage who came on and answered a ton of questions. But Absolutely arm yourself with the best knowledge possible. If you're going to be using, uh, I'm sorry, if you're going to be doing independent contract work, make sure that you are lowering your tax liability as much as you can. Because when you work for yourself, all of these are deductions. Sorry, employees can't write any of this stuff off. You should take advantage of it. So 
get on board with someone that can do your taxes professionally so that you're not being taken advantage of. There are many professions who work solely as freelancers. Think photographer or editor or writers. Another industry that used to subscribe to this idea of independent contract work was modeling. It's easy to come to this conclusion, especially when considering that models who mostly do single day shoots, it's easy to assume that they would be contractors or that that kind of work is contract work. But when the IRS guidelines are examined, it's actually quite apparent that models are in fact employees. They're required to show up at a certain time, work for a certain number of hours. They're told how to look and what to wear. They're instructed in their poses and generally speaking, are very much controlled while they are on set. A number of models started to catch on to this and there was a large shift in mindset of employee versus contractor. While you may not think that this is a big deal, being an employee has implications for the employer, namely employment taxes. All of the things that we see deducted on our paycheck as employee, the employer pays the other half of it. Things like social security, disability, unemployment, workers' comp, all of those taxes that you have taken out, the employer has to pay the same amount for every single employee. As well, there are hefty fines for employers who knowingly misclassify workers in order to avoid paying those taxes. Most models are now employees of the agency that represent them, though some do still remain independent contractors. This same discussion arose about two years ago in respect to cheerleaders for professional teams. Again, the same thought process can be applied where one might assume that because they mostly just show up for games, that they are contractors. However, they're in a highly controlled situation. The organizations control things like their appearance, their uniform, they have training, they rehearse, All of these things are in direct violation of employee versus contractor relationship. Last year, cheerleaders for professional organizations in California were granted employee status for their work. There was also a lawsuit in San Francisco about a year ago regarding the employment type for Uber drivers. I imagine that this will be a much more difficult case, though, because Uber very much falls into the independent contractor realm. The drivers use their own cars, they dictate their own work schedule, aren't given any training, and operate very independently of the company. So those are just a couple different situations and models that I can show to you how even though you might think that just because someone shows up and does a quick gig or they're only hired for a day, if they are in a highly controlled situation, they're likely going to be an employee, not a contractor. I would argue that our current two employment models, contractor or employee, are outdated especially in respect to the current employment types. There have been a number of ideas put forth to create 
more of a gray space between just the two options that we have right now, but none of them have been adopted yet. With the insurgence of the on-demand workforce, when you think about things like Airbnb and Uber, there's got to be a sliding scale between either being an employee or being a contractor. I believe that in our lifetime, we will see another category emerge that blends the two, providing increased resources such as healthcare or 401k to the contractor while limiting the liability of the employer. It is my personal opinion that athletic trainers have a great deal of experience to be gained by working as an independent contractor. Not only can you develop yourself clinically by working with various populations, but it forces you to grow your business acumen as well. The business side of things is nothing to be afraid of in working for yourself. In fact, I could probably argue that there is more to be gained in way of tax deductions and autonomy by being an independent contractor than an employee. Moreover, there is a great deal of opportunity available for us personally and professionally if we can represent ourselves as independent workers. I can attest to the entertainment industry and USA Athletics both being areas that were penetrated from athletic trainers who were willing to navigate the waters of self-employment and have opened up doors for many others as a result. It is not simply enough to just work as a contractor with no knowledge of the responsibility that goes along with it. If you have the desire to pick up contract work, you need to do what is required to represent yourself and our profession in the most appropriate way possible. Quite frankly, if what we discuss today seems overwhelming and too much to consider, perhaps you are better suited to not work contract gigs. Don't allow yourself to make an uninformed decision about working this type of work. Ask questions, read the contract, understand your responsibility. What are the guidelines and parameters that you're expected to work within? We all have the best of intentions when we approach a situation and we never want to assume that something will go wrong. But don't naively place your professional career on the line without knowing what's at stake. Thank you for listening. You are now eligible to receive your free CEU. Please go to theadvantage.com CEU to take the quiz. Join us next time when we will be discussing communication and networking. Thank you to Mr. Logistics for the music you've heard throughout.